Let's uh, read God's Word together. We're going to start um, a, a new series looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, but we're going to begin by reading the story of how the church in Corinth was founded, which we actually find in the book of Acts. So, we're going to read Acts chapter 18 and reading the first 11 verses. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a, a Jew named Aquila, Aquila a, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and, and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So, Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the Word of God. Amen. And then we're going to read from the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and reading from verse 1. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and this, this letter is written some years later. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be His holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you, because of His grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack in any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen, and thanks be to God. Let's pray. From ancient words comes Your living Word, Your truthfulness throughout the generations. And we pray by Your Holy Spirit that You would touch our hearts and minds today as You did of old. 
let this meditation on your word not just be for us a time to learn or a time to think, but a time that you draw us to you. Amen. Seventy nine AD Mount Vesuvius erupted. You'll probably know the tale. A huge crowd of ash covered the ancient Roman city of Pompeii, just as ordinary people were going about their ordinary life. That disaster is incredibly famous, perhaps of one of the ancient events that we most know about because it has allowed archaeologists to give us a glimpse into their lives as they have uncovered how people lived, what they ate, what they did, not just the doings of emperors and, and the big things that we read in the, the, the Roman historians, but actually what was going on every day for everyday people. And that is fascinating if you're interested in ancient history. About 30 years earlier, give or take, a guy called Paul wrote a letter to some people in a Greek city called Corinth. It was a very small group of people he wrote to, probably not any more than are sitting in this church today. But that letter, like the ruins of Pompeii, gives us an insight not into big ideas and all of those things, although they are there, but into a small community. We know their names, some of them. Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Chloe and her household. Stephanus and his family. Titus Justus. Crispus Gaius. Fortunus, who was probably a slave. Erastus, who was probably quite a rich council official, Phoebe, and a lot of women as well. These people lived in a world that was very different to ours, a world of legions and of gladiators, of temples, of shrines, of slaves and of masters, of gods and of sacrifices. And yet, as we read this book that gives a little bit of insight into their lives we believe it's not just academic history, but it matters to us because of this. These people love Jesus. And these people were trying to figure out how you lived if you loved Jesus in the world that they found themselves in. And that's exactly the same question that we are asking today. How do we love Jesus and serve Jesus in our world today, a very different world? How do we figure out how you live for a guy that got crucified as a criminal in a world where most people don't believe a word of it? The Corinthians were doing that just as we did it today. And sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes we get things very wrong. Sometimes God's Spirit is at work. And it was exactly the same for them as it is for us. So, what I want to do 
is I want to spend some weeks exploring bits of this letter to the Corinthians and looking at how they tried to work out what it was to live for Jesus in the different questions they faced. Our questions are different, but we can look from that to what God's Word teaches us about, about this truth of living the gospel. Now, a little confession to make. I love the book of 1 Corinthians partly because I did my research studies on it, which meant I spent three years studying three chapters of it. There's one of the, the troubles with doing research is they always say you know more and more about less and less as you hone in on a specialist subject. Well, I'll treat you to this. I'm not going to spend three years on it, and we're not only going to look at three chapters. We're going to spend a few weeks on it, though, as, as, as we go through it. Maybe not quite in that depth. A little bit of background for those that like geography and other things about Corinth. There's ancient Corinth, um, the ruins of it today. Has anyone actually been to Corinth? Anyone been? I remember passing by it when I was about 12 years old and my parents had taken us to Greece. And all I can remember was it was pouring with rain and we looked through a bus window, it was all steamed up. If I'd known I was going to spend three years studying it, I might have paid more attention, but I didn't pay any at all. Corinth is, is, is quite interesting because of where it is. It's about 50 miles south of Athens, and it's famous today because of the Corinthian Canal. And the Corinthian Canal means that rather than sailing right round the bottom of Greece, you can sail through. And at the time, there was no canal um, because the canal wasn't built until the 1800s. But what there was, was a port at either side of Corinth, and people would bring their, their goods in a boat to one side, and then they would get slaves to carry the boat across to the other side, and it saved them going all the way around the Peloponnese. And it meant you could get goods from the east, from Turkey, from Ephesus, from important places in the east, right through to Rome without making this big sea journey around the bottom of Greece. Now, that meant that it was a city that was important for trade. It was a city where east met west. It was a city where the whole world came where a whole load of immigrants and, and new folk and new ideas and new religions were all coming together at once. It was also a place that was famous for something else, for the Ith, I'm going to spell this wrong, the, Ith, the, Ithmian, the Ithmian Games, because it's on the Isthmus. I've said the Isthmus wrong, haven't I? I don't know. Anyway, it's on the Isthmus, uh, which is that narrow bit of land, and it had games there like the Olympic Games, every two years. In fact, they were the biggest games in the ancient world except the Olympic Games. So you had tourism and you had all the folk that you would get at the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow coming in for that time. Artists and all sorts of things came in for that time. Now, it had a bit of a history, Corinth, because it was in Greece, but it was actually quite a Roman city because the ancient Greek city had actually been destroyed in 146 B.C., been absolutely destroyed by the Romans. And then in about 44 BC, Julius Caesar, have you heard of him? He rebuilt the city, and he rebuilt it as a Roman colony. He settled his retiring soldiers there, and he settled his people there. And by the time we come to when Paul is writing 100 years later, um, then it's, it's a real mix of Greek and Roman that's in that place. And so, Corinth is a little bit of a city where everything is happening, where wealth and trade is coming in, it's a bit of a boom town. You know, in, in Rome, you got the established families and the senators, and everything was, was much more stratified. And in Athens, you got the philosophers, the Oxford University people. 
But in, in Corinth, you've got people and tradesmen and, and, and sailors and, and people that were setting up businesses. And because there was no ancient elite, it was a place that you thought you could make good and you could rise in the world. And all of that was going on. It was also a place of, that had a bit of a reputation for promiscuity and for sex. Now, port cities often do. Corinth particularly, because there's an ancient geographer that of, of, of Roman times that, that wrote about it, and you'll often see this if you read anything about Corinth in the older books, and he said there was a thousand prostitutes that served in the temple. Now, a wee caveat, a lot of people think that was more his fantasy than it was reality, and also it referred to the old Corinth before the Romans had destroyed it, but that's just a wee aside. Paul comes to Corinth, as we read in the book of Acts, and here's the interesting thing. When he comes to Corinth, he meets Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And Acts tells us that they come to Corinth because they've been expelled from Rome by the emperor Claudius. Now, here's the interesting thing, because sometimes people think the Bible makes this stuff up. But in a Roman writer called Suetonius, we find this. He writes, as the Jews were making constant disturbance at the instigation of Christus, he, that is Claudius, expelled the Jews from Rome. So, it, very interesting that here you have the historical record of the Greek and the Romans matching up with the Bible's record. Gives us a bit of confidence that we can trust the Scriptures there. The interesting thing is that he says that they were expelled because of Christus. Now, most of the scholars think that what Suetonius really means is that they were expelled because of Christ, because some of the Jews were becoming Christians, and it was causing rancor in the Jewish community, uproar, disturbance, and eventually the emperor kicked the whole lot of them out. So, already in these early days after the resurrection, the Word of God is reaching right into the heart of Rome, if that's right. Paul hasn't been to Rome yet. He hasn't even written the letter to the Romans, but already the Word of God is getting there. But here's something else just to think about, because Aquila and Priscilla come to Corinth, and it's one of these coincidences that happens here, because it just happens that the Emperor Claudius kicks them out. It just happens that they go to Corinth. It just happens they arrive in the city just as Paul is arriving in the city. It just happens that Paul is a leather worker, and it just happens that they are leather workers, and it just happens as he arrives, he thinks, I'm going to set up a little business using my skills, and it just happens as they arrive, they think we're going to settle in Corinth using our skills and making some money at leather working, and so they set up a business together, and it's all a big coincidence. Or is it God's hand moving little people together in their business lives to change the world? And that is what God has always done. And then Silas and Timothy arrive and they begin to share the gospel with the Gentiles too. And they set up a little church. And the little church is probably at that stage no more than two or three house groups. It's tiny in this huge, big city. And for 18 months, Paul stayed there teaching and preaching and then he left. Two years passed, and the church began to grow. And by the time he writes, there's probably maybe 150 of them 
And then Paul gets news from the church. And it's to that news he writes this letter in response. But the news isn't good news. A bunch of people called Chloe's people, we don't know much about them, come and they tell Paul that the church is divided. The church is divided, Paul, because some of the people, and we'll read about this later, they think you're great, and they're going around saying, I'm a Paul person. I really, you know, Paul's my man. He tells me all the rest. But there's been another teacher in Corinth that's come in, and, and he was really eloquent. He was a fantastic preacher, a guy called Apollos. And some of them are going around saying, no, Apollos is much better than Paul. I'm an Apollos Christian, not a Paul Christian. And they're dividing all this little way and falling out over it all the time. In fact, it's got so bad that for some reason, we don't know the reason, some of the believers are going down to the sheriff court and suing each other over a business deal that's gone bad. And then, when they have the Lord's Supper, it's interesting, we were chatting earlier about the traditions we have here, but they had the Lord's Supper, and they had no traditions. So, they didn't know how you did this. And so, they were having a meal in the house, and they were having the Lord's Supper. And we don't quite know how it was working, but after the meal, the report Paul gets is some of them are staggering out drunk. And some of them are going out hungry. Because some of them are rich and they brought their booze and they're sharing it with their friends. And some of them are poor and they've gone away with nothing to eat. And how is this the Lord's Supper? And then there's reports that, that as this church are trying to how to live in, in this immoral Corinthian society, that actually inside the church there are things that are shocking going on. There's, there's some guy that's, that's living with his father's wife. Uh, what's going on here? And they're falling out about theology as well, on top of that, about the resurrection and what they believe. And then Paul gets a letter from the church, and the letter's full of questions about marriage and about sex, questions about how much you pay your ministers and your pastors, questions about, well, how do we live? Because meat, we go to buy meat, but we know the meat has been sacrificed in the temple before it came into the butcher's shop and it's been sacrificed to pagan gods. Are we, can we eat that? Can we not eat that? Some people think it's okay. Some people don't think it's okay. And then they're having a fallout over the whole thing. And then there's worship. And I don't know what their worship was like, but it must have been chaotic because some of them are speaking in tongues and some of them are having problems with that. And they're all over the place with it. And, 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 and women in worship in, in quite a traditional society, the women are doing all sorts of stuff in, in worship. And some people think it's gone too far. And some people, you know, it's, it's just chaos. You know, I read this letter, and as you read it, you find a church that's divided about sex, divided about worship, divided about money, divided about ministry, divided about gender, doesn't know what to believe, and I think this has obviously got nothing to say to the Church of Scotland today. Or has it? Is it that actually in every generation the church is trying to figure out how to be faithful to Jesus? And sometimes, because it's full of sinful people, it's getting it hideously wrong. You know, I sometimes have Christians say to me, I despair about the state of the church today. Why can't we be a biblical church? And I'm left thinking, what, like the one in Corinth? And we could go through all the letters that were given in the New Testament, Galatia, Philippians, and we could see all the problems in the church. Why? Because God is choosing then as now, to work this amazing gospel message through broken, sinful people that get it wrong. And it's always been that way, and it always will be that way. The issues in Corinth are not the same as they are today, and we'll have to get our heads around some of them, but it's the same idea. 
that God is calling people to live in different cultures and to work out what it means to be faithful to God and to His Word in that situation. You know, sometimes I despair about the little things that we get involved in in ministry. How we manage finances, what we do with a flat, what we do with a building, how we form a presbytery plan, all the little practical things. But here's the thing, the church has always been God working in the things that are happening locally and Christians having to figure out what Jesus is doing in those little things. That's the way it's always been. So, let's turn to the letter. I'm not going to spend too long, um, but I really want to talk just about the first two verses. Paul writes, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be His holy people, together with those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You know, what Paul does as he writes this letter, and it must be as he writes it, he's thinking about all these awful things happening in Corinth and all the problems they have and how they're getting spiritual gifts wrong and how there's immorality in the church and, and how they're broken and how they're squabbling and how they're fighting. And he writes, you're a wonderful holy people. And there's no irony in what he writes here. Because what Paul is doing at this point is he's zooming right out. And he starts with two fundamental questions. Who am I and who are you? Who am I and who are you? And I would strongly, strongly say that from the New Testament, that is what we are always called to do when we're getting involved in all sorts of things that matter, to zoom out and ask those questions before God. According to the Word of God, who am I and who are you? And once we've answered that question, we'll figure out what that means in the situations we find ourselves. Paul begins, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, and you are the church of God in Corinth, and you are the church of God that God has sanctified and made holy. The church isn't a building, obviously. We say that, and it's so obvious. But not only that, it, it isn't a structure or an institution or a constitution. The word that's used here for church is the word ecclesia in Greek, and it really means the gathering, the people that come together. You are the people of God, and you're in Corinth, and you're called to be God's holy people, who's made you God's holy people, and you're part of a worldwide church who call on the name of the Lord Jesus in every place. Now, this is a massive vision Paul is talking to a dysfunctional, squabbling, sinful, shocking little church, and he's saying, you are called by God and made holy, and you are part of a worldwide church that God is calling into being that's going to transform the whole of the world. And you know that society with all its, its values and its paganism, it's seeping into the church? God's plan is for you to be a holy people that will transform that world around you, not the other way around. And God is doing that in Jesus Christ. That's the big picture. You know, I sometimes <laughs> wonder why I am where I am. Yeah, one of the things I've had as we've gone through all sorts of problems in the church is I've sometimes had people in other denominations say, why are you still in the Church of Scotland? All that's wrong with it. 
Some of you had friends say that to you? Yeah? Why are you still in the Church of Scotland? Look at all the shocking things that it's doing. Look at all the things that it's feeling in. Look at its numbers. Look at all the ways it's unfaithful. You know, the short answer is this. I'm in the Church of Scotland because God called me. That's the answer. And that's the sense of what Paul is saying here. Some of you are saying, why did I come to Corinth? What use was I? What authority did I have? And he's saying, I came because God called. The same way that God called you to be the church and in Corinth, that's where he put you. The calling of God makes a huge difference. Every time I wonder, what on earth am I doing as a minister? I'm feeling, I'm getting things wrong. I, I wonder what I'm doing here. I come back and say, because God called me. Why are you where you're at? Because God called you. God put you in that school, in that office, in that family. And when God does that, when God puts you in a place, He's not made a mistake. He's called you, and He's made you holy. And that holiness really matters. The Old Testament, the idea of holiness is that God set things apart for His special use, a holy temple, but more than that, a holy people that were to shine and show the world how to live. Sometimes they didn't look very holy, but that's what they were. Remember who you are. Before you start thinking about what the right is or the wrong is or what you should do, come back and say, I am the person that God has called in Jesus Christ and has made holy. It's made into a saint for His purposes. Now let's figure it out. Keep going over it. You know, one of the reasons in church we keep doing this, we keep saying, who are we? Who are we? Who are we? One of the reasons we have a, a font there, reminds us that we're baptized people. One of the reasons we have a communion table up here every week remembers that we are the people that have been invited into this meal with Jesus, His body and blood shed for us. It reminds us because we forget. And why do we need to remember? It's so that we keep reminding ourselves until it becomes second nature, so that as we live our lives in the practical ways, these things are coming to mind. It's interesting, when the church is falling out, we'll see this later on, Paul doesn't say, oh, it's bad to fight. He says, you're baptized. You're all baptized into Jesus. Now process your divisions. And when Paul is trying to get them to think about what it means to live in, 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 a, in a way that glorifies the Lord, he says, you're all one body made in Christ Jesus' image. And when Paul is trying to get them to think about what, what they're to do with their own body sexually, he says, just remember this, that Christ came in His body and He was risen in His body, and you one day will rise to be with Him. Now, think about that as you think through your ethical questions that you have. This isn't just theology. This is about who we are. It's, it's pastoral, and it's practical as we think about how we live in the world today, because how we think about ourselves and how we know what God has done for us will impact on how we act. You are God's people. This should be a huge encouragement to you, and it's also a huge encouragement to stop and remember that we are part of a people who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere. We sometimes get very hung up on what's happening in our little bit of the world, and it's good to see the wider picture. I remember being in a hospital ward a few years ago when I was visiting my father who was very ill at the time. We were in a very dark place. And as I went into the ward, 
there was a man visiting his wife. And I didn't know anything about their story, but he was sitting at the bedside reading from the book of Ecclesiastes. There is a time for everything. You know the words. And I remember very clearly as I heard that, not knowing anything about his story, suddenly remembering the words that Paul was given in that vision in Acts 18. I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. I'm not alone. I'm doing something that is bigger than what you are. And I think at the moment, zooming out is, is, is really good for us because sometimes we think, oh, Christianity is going to the dogs in our neck of the woods or in, in, in our culture. Actually, the Christian church is growing faster than it ever has before. One of the great encouragements, I went to Ethiopia. We went out there with Tear Fund and I thought I was going out to encourage these poor Ethiopians that had such a tough life. Now, they do materially have a massively tough life. I could tell you a whole lot of stories about that. But I'll tell you this, they were full of the joy of the Lord. They had nothing, but they would give it all away in complete generosity. And their churches were growing. And if you read the stories just now, you find the church is growing. It is sweeping in career. Strongest Presbyterian churches in the world are in career, and they are growing, and they are growing, and they are growing. China is opening up to the gospel in ways it never has before. More people are becoming Christians every day than ever have in the last 2,000 years right now. Zoom out, folks, and see God's big picture before we zoom in and see what He's doing in the everyday. And that, I think, is the message of the book of 1 Corinthians as we see it. We are going to see a very broken church, and it's going to help us reflect about the brokenness of our own situations. But we're also going to see a conviction that God works in those very broken churches, calling them continually back to what Jesus has done, and particularly what Jesus has done on the cross for us that changes everything. You know, I was struck the other day as some Christians were talking about what's called now the culture war. Things in our culture that they didn't approve of, that they wanted to speak out against, and they wondered why the church wasn't speaking out against them. And it struck me this, that the world was not transformed by Christians winning culture wars or battles on Twitter or Facebook or politics or laws. It was changed through little broken communities that lived differently and struggled to do it and got it wrong, but kept loving and kept caring, kept embracing, kept including kept struggling to live faithful to Jesus Christ and not just take on the values around them. And that's the only way God ever has changed the world. And so, as we learn from this letter, let us be encouraged, but let us also keep asking those questions in everything that we do, in the discussions that we have in a church, in the ways that we live. Who has God made me and who has God made us? And what does that mean for how we live today? Amen.